are in the last week of going through the book of First Peter. And I think, I don't know if this has been true for you. For me, this has been a really impacting series because of when it has hit me in my life. And we've looked at this theme of First Peter, which was written to a church of people being persecuted in a very uncertain world. And one of the first exhortations or encouragements that Peter gives this church is to rejoice in the truth of who Jesus Christ is with a joy that is in a joy that's beyond words. And so in the midst of uncertainty, he calls them to a joy that is so overwhelming that there are not words to describe it. I have always had words for everything. It's just who I've been as a person. There's teacher's notes that back that up. And so for me, not having the words to describe something is a magnitude that really challenges me and gets me excited because I always have words. And so a joy that is beyond words stirs something in my heart because it's ultimately a place I would love to find rest, especially when that joy is in our Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's difficult for me to find joy and rest right now. It's an uncertain season. Our family has moved. Um, It's been a new start for our kids. It's been a new house. It's been traffic for the first time in six years. Um, In rural Indiana, traffic is a combine during harvest season that you wait on a little bit. And so there's just been a lot of micro uncertainties for me. But even beyond that, we're in this time as a society coming out of this pandemic. It feels like there's also all of these like macro uncertainties that we're confronted with every Every day. So like inflation, what's going to happen with that? You know, is COVID done? Is it not done? What's, is there a supply chain? Can we afford food this week? What is happening with gas? Is a country, just to be honest, we have a massive amount of increasing political unrest. That's not a statement. You're like, well, we should, or no, we should. I'm not, look, look let's not, we're not doing that today. Just, but we have this growing political unrest that doesn't make us feel really good about the direction of our country. If there's one thing we can all agree on politically, it's that things aren't great. And so every day we wake up to these macro uncertainties that take away our ability to feel safe and secure. And so we can come to church and we can sing and we can hear about joy, but then throughout the week, we walk around and our souls are just kind of eroded, whether that's the big uncertainties or the little uncertainties of just exhaustion. I mean, kids are back in school and we've got to get that going again. How are my finances at home? I don't know if ends are going to meet. All of my cars need to be worked on. I'm fighting with my spouse. I have family drama with my parents. I'm back at middle school and I hate my teachers and I cannot bear the thought of going into the cafeteria and figuring out where to sit. Again, there's all of these weights that life is just tugging on us constantly and we're exhausted. And so when we're confronted with this concept of a joy that is beyond words, it feels distant and far away, right? Um, It feels like sometimes we're just going through these hollow motions and what do we do? What do we do in those spaces? The good news is we're not alone feeling that. The people that Peter wrote to, they were feeling the same thing, right? They had most likely been displaced, moved across the Roman Empire in a settlement program. They were being persecuted for their faith. They were being excluded socially. They were struggling financially. They probably felt hollow. They felt uncertain. And so to close is is we've gone through all of these different places that Peter has called their hearts and our hearts. He's going to close with some instructions, and we're going to see a picture of this. And so we're going to start in 1 Peter 5. We're going to actually end in the book of Daniel. It's going to make sense, I promise. And so if you have your Bibles, let's just read these last words that he is giving these people. 
This is his closing statement. This is the last piece of information he wants them to have here in chapter 5, verse 12. He says, By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. And that's it. That's his closing. Did you catch the final command he gives them? He says, stand firm in the true grace of God. The last call to these people is that they would stand firm in the grace of God. He says, I've told you everything about who Jesus is and what that means for you guys. Stand firm in the truth. In the midst of uncertainty, stand firm in what you know to be true about who Jesus is. That's the same command he would give us as we go back into a week of just crazy noise and busyness and stress and discouragement. All of those outside forces that are kind of pulling at our souls a little bit. He says, stand firm in the grace and truth of God that we know is found in the person and work of Jesus. So that's what we want to talk about. How do we do that? How do we stand firm in our faith? Because it's difficult to stand firm in your faith when it feels like you're sort of living in a minor hurricane, right? One of the best pictures I have seen in scripture of what it looks like to stand firm in your faith in a world that is not friendly to that is in the book of Daniel. And I don't think it's an accident that so much of Daniel's life parallels what Peter's talking about. Because if you remember, Peter addresses these people as exiles living in a foreign country. And the language he's using is intentionally reminiscent of when God's people were captured and taken into exile in Babylon. And he does that on purpose because the concept is very similar. And so if you, if you have your Bibles, we're gonna turn back into the Old Testament and we're gonna be in the book of Daniel in chapter one. And so in Daniel chapter one, what we're gonna see is the life of these young men who were living as exiles in a world that was relatively hostile to their faith. And so if you know the story, God's people had been promised a kingdom. They were consistently disobedient to God. And in the midst of their disobedience, God said, if you're not obedient, I'm going to have to discipline you. And the way that's going to happen is you're going to be conquered. You're going to be carried off into a foreign land. And one day I will restore you, right? That was the ark of the Old Testament. Daniel was living at the end of that ark. And what had happened in Daniel's life is more likely than not, he was a noble, a Jewish noble, and they had been conquered by King Nebuchadnezzar in the Babylonian Empire. What Babylon would do is they would conquer people and they would take the best of the best, the best stock, the nobles, and deport them to live in their country so they could teach them and use them as administrators because it was a big empire and it took, we could talk about ancient history all day and I would like it, I don't think you would. So let me kind of fight through this to the point. Daniel and his friends were teenagers. They were living in a place that did not worship the Lord, that wanted to instruct them and shape them and use them as an instrument of their empire. And so for Daniel and his friends, they had this challenge. How, how could they live out the life that God had called them to in a place that was going to press in and violate a lot of the values that they had been called to hold? And it's a beautiful picture, I think, of how we as Christians can live out our faith in a non-Christian world. Because it's not like we don't live in a Christian country. If there was ever any debate about that, like at this point in time, we can safely say not Christian. That helps us. 
because it gives us a contrast for how we live. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at how we can strengthen our stance. We're going to look at these three anchors that strengthen the stance of our faith. How are we anchoring our lives into the truth of who Jesus is? Because the world's going to drag us off of that foundation. And so let's read, and we're going to look at this first anchor. We're going to be in Daniel chapter 1, verse 8. Daniel and his friends had been called to this program. It's, it's kind of like finishing school or grad school. And as a part of this, they were given a special diet. And part of this diet was really good food. It was Babylonian meat and probably wine, which was fine. That wasn't the drama. But it was, it was food that had been sacrificed to idols. And the reason that was a problem is because Daniel felt like he would be participating in the worship of these pagan idols, these false gods, by eating this food that had been sacrificed. He'd be disobeying what God had called him to do. So it says, but Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs, one of the officials, to allow him to not defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink, for why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who were of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. So let's talk about this a little bit. They are in a foreign court. They're young. Um, they have no power, no security, no leverage. And they're being told, you're going to eat this food because it's good for you. And let's be honest, like practically, this was not a bad thing. This was better food than 90% of the population was eating. It was really good steak. It was fresh. It was clean. There was plenty of it. And the reason was because the, the empire of Babylon wanted these young men to be in optimum condition to rule and lead in the empire that they were living in, right? So practically speaking, they're not trying to punish these guys. They're actually doing the best that they can to help them grow into who culture had taught them to be. And Daniel says, I can't do that because me doing this would cause me to disobey who God has called me to be. The first anchor that we see here in Daniel is the anchor of obedience. Even in a culture that doesn't understand and hold to the same values, Daniel says, listen, I have to obey what God has called me to do because I understand who he is and what that means. Us being obedient to God is really just a reaction to a proper understanding of who he is. If God is our Father who created us and loves us and called us out of sin and saved us through Jesus Christ, then obedience makes sense because we understand who he is. This is what Daniel's living out. He says, God has told me not to do this. I cannot do this and acknowledge these gods and defile myself by eating this food. Even though this doesn't make sense to culture, Daniel says, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to defile myself. So as Christians, I think one of the challenges we have living in a world that's not Christian, even if it can disguise itself that way sometimes, is how do we anchor ourselves into who God has called us to be by being obedient in a world that largely does not understand our values? Are we being obedient to the life that God has called us to? Are we engaging culture in a way where when confronted with actions, hearts, or constructs that would violate who God has called us to be, we can say, no, 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 I'm choosing God's way, not culture's. And I think one of the ways that's tricky for us is our culture can almost look Christian sometimes. Like we're at a point, I think, in the arc of American evangelicalism where we can substitute Christian obedience for conservative values. And I, I, I know this is offensive. Those aren't always the same thing. 
They're just not. And so what we have to be able to do, number one, is know the word of God so we can understand and make those distinctions. But number two, we've got to be able to look at who God has called us to be so that we can identify those places that our values and our commands of scripture are not compatible with who scripture is calling us to be. And so if you'll give me permission, let me be a little bit um, application heavy in a specific way here because with obedience, there's places we instantly go and we can say, okay, we need to be obedient sexually, right? Okay, that's good. We need to be obedient morally. We shouldn't kill people. That's good. I would affirm that value. And I think scripture would too. Let me go to a little bit of a different place with this though. Because I think that this is connected to a lot of the challenges that we have and a lot of the fatigue and stress that we feel. What does it look like for us to be obedient with our time? No one is offering you food sacrifice to idols. It's not an issue that we really deal with as much anymore. But, but I do think that we're offered time that's sacrificed to idols. And so here's what I mean by that. There is a picture of what your life should look like for you to be a successful American in an upper middle class part of the country, right? And so there's certain expectations that go along with that, with how you're gonna spend your time. And there's some variety in there depending on what circles you swim in, but by and large, there's just some demands that culture is gonna make on your time in the name of certain idols. One of those idols is success, right? I'm not telling you not to work hard at your job, but here's what I am telling you. If your job becomes an idol and you are constantly only giving your time to your work and there's not time for the Lord, is that a picture of obedience? It might not be. It might not be. How is your time? Have you leveraged your time around the idol of success to the point that you're not quiet and in prayer, that you're not in scripture, that you're not in community, that you're not serving? You might have a problem with being obedient with your time, right? Here's another one. Parents, this one's hard for me, is how are we structuring our kids' schedules? Because what American culture would tell you is you need to give your kids every opportunity to be successful. And there's some, there's some positive in that, right? And this is a tension that we walked in with my youngest for a while in Indiana with travel sports. Uh, man, if you want your kid to be able to play sports, well, they have to have the best coaching and they have to have the best technique and they have to have the best opportunities and the best teams and they have to be at practice five days a week and then you have to travel all weekend to wherever for the tournaments in the name of giving our kids opportunities. Are we sacrificing our children to the idol of success, popularity, fitting in? And here's another way of saying that. Are we spending all of our time and energy to make sure that our kids are really good at chasing a ball around? I love sports. I'm not saying don't play sports. I'm not even saying don't play travel sports. Here's the question I'm asking though. Are we sacrificing our kids and our time with them on the idol of a certain type of cultural success that's held up? What does that look like for us? Are we being obedient with our time and how we teach our kids what really matters? And maybe you're like, oh, it's not sports, we're good. Okay, music, art, like whatever, like fill in the blank. There's an expectation culturally that our kids are successful. And you see it because everywhere you go, people have the stickers on their car, like whatever sport, club, team, band, or the social media, like there's just this pressure on us. Like, hey, do you wanna be a good parent? You better make sure your kids are successful. You better make sure they're in the right, you know, as a first chair, is that the thing if you're really good at music, somebody? It's okay, you can tell me, I literally don't know. I'm seen nodding, thank you. <laughs> Very Presbyterian in that moment. I'm asking for feedback and everybody's like, I'm so uncomfortable right now. Um, <laughs> 
Your kid better be good at sports if you want them to fit in. Your kid better get good grades if you want them to get to UGA because not everybody does, and that's a value in this state, right? I'm just going to tell you, University of Texas out-of-state fees maybe, but it's worth it. Anyways, let's move on. Um, You want your kid to fit in and be popular, you better make sure you're giving them time to cultivate culturally a picture of what's acceptable to us. And if we're not careful, our time is being sacrificed to these idols, whether that's success or money or popularity or whatever. We really have to look at how we're using our time because coming out of the pandemic, we hear this a lot. It's, man, my plate's full. My plate's full. I wish I could have more peace and worship, but my plate's full. I wish I could engage in ministry, but my plate's full. I wish that I could be in community, but my plate's full. Could it be that our plates are full because we're filling it with the wrong things? I just wonder. I just wonder if some of the disconnect and drift we feel is due to the fact that we've not been obedient with our time. Moral obedience, like we've talked about, if you've been in church, or even if you haven't, if you've lived in the South, you understand moral obedience, right? But listen, time obedience, I think, is more challenging because our culture is telling us what it looks like to use our time properly, and it's really hard to say no. It's really hard to say no because there's an intense pressure to fit into the picture of what culture has taught us that success looks like. And it is scary to let go of that. And so sometimes when we're challenged with that, we can fudge on obedience a little bit. Man, church isn't that important this week. Well, of course you're telling us to go. Yes, I am telling you to go to church, but, but not because it's my job, but because scripture says it's just better for you to live in community, right? I promise, hear my heart. This is not a pyramid scheme for Jesus. Your soul is built to live in the rhythms that God has designed it to and worship and community and service are key pillars of the rhythm that is good for our soul as new creations in Jesus Christ. Let's not sacrifice that for these smaller idols that can feel way more important than they actually are. Are we being obedient with our time? So that anchor of obedience is such a key piece of us finding stability in an uncertain world. And it's a challenge. My brain just feels loud some weeks. Like that's the best way I can describe it on this side of ADHD. But like it just feels noisy because there's all the stuff I need to fix and there's all the places I need to take the kids and there's all the things I need to work out at work and there's all of this just stuff that won't stop. And if I'm not careful, the way that I can silence that is not through obedience. It's by chasing success and idolatry of the world, right? Like it'll just be enough when I get to this point. And Daniel paints a different picture. He says, listen, I know this is what you're telling me, but I can't do this because it's not what God's called me to do. I can't do it. And so he tells the guy, he says, I can't do this, man. And that was risky because I don't know how much you know. Um, I know that um, ancient Near Eastern Bronze Age history isn't in everyone's strike zone. So I don't know how much you know about the nuances of the political system back then. But if you disagreed with the king, they just killed you. Like it's very, very simple. If you told him no, then you died. Okay, and so this was a risky move for him. His obedience was gonna be costly. There was a chance that he was taking. And so let's keep reading and see what happens here in verse 11, because he tells the guy, hey, I'm not gonna do this. And what did the king's servant say? If you don't look the way you're supposed to look, they're gonna kill me and I'm not okay with that. And so let's look and see what happens. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. 
So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all of the youths who ate the king's food. So the stewards took away the food and wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. Okay, so let's really dig into this because this is not a biblical mandate for you to be a vegetarian. That's not what that's saying. Let's see what it's actually talking about though. What Daniel did was step out in faith and trust God. At the end of the day, this is the second anchor we have to dig into. It was trust. He said, okay, I don't know how this is going to go, but I'm going to stand up for my faith and trust God that I have at least make this attempt that God's going to come through for me, right? Because that's ultimately what obedience is always going to lead to. Your obedience is always going to lead you to a place of having to trust God every single time. If you don't trust God, you will not be obedient to him. It's impossible. And so what we see Daniel do here is go and say, listen, let me make you a deal, which this is just a side note. When we think about standing firm in our faith and standing up to something as Americans, that almost always means the overthrow and destruction of tyranny. Almost always, right? That's not what he did here. That's not what he did. Mostly because he couldn't, but also because sometimes standing up for something doesn't mean the overthrow of tyranny. Sometimes it means having to engage with tyranny to the level that you can. We just don't have a context for that. And so for us, there are times, there are times, was that offensive? Because I know you're from England, I'm sorry. Was that, I don't mean that we, um, okay. Just wanna make sure there. Um, you're a lovely people. We love your tea and your soccer. And so um, as he's standing up for tyranny, it's interesting to me that he does it while still being loving and respectful. And so I think sometimes as we trust God, one of the byproducts of trusting God is that we let go of some of our ability to use force and power to get what we want. And we actually trust that he's gonna work through our obedience. And so as he's trusting God here, let's think about what is happening for him to do this. He recognizes where there's a problem. He says something about it. And then he follows through when there's some resistance. The first guy he talked to said, no, 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 I'm not dying for your convictions. So he says, okay, let's make a deal. He said, tell you what, why don't you put God to the test? He says, let me try it this way. And if it's not better, then we can circle back and have another conversation. So in that moment, what he does is he puts God to the test and says, I'm gonna trust that God is gonna come through and he's gonna do what he said he was gonna do. And that is that when I am obedient, God is going to reveal that it is actually better for me. A lot of times when we get to that point of having to choose between disobedience and obedience, one of the deterring factors in us making the right decision is that we don't actually trust that God's way is better. Man, I don't actually trust that being generous with my money is gonna be better for my soul because I might not have what I need. I don't actually trust that letting go of success is gonna be better for me because then I might not have the financial security that success is gonna provide. I don't actually trust that stewarding my sexuality along biblical lines is gonna be better for me because then I'm not gonna find the pleasure and fulfillment that the world says that I should. I don't actually trust that forgiveness is better than revenge because I could get hurt again. So as we live in a world that is really defined by uncertainty, it really stresses this point because we're kind of put in this situation where we have to confront this reality is that there is not going to be security that you're gonna find in the world. 
And so we can chase it and we can fight that illusion and say, well, if I just had enough money or if I could just get into this neighborhood or if I could just get my kids out of the house or if I could just be popular, if I could just get here, then everything would be okay. And at the end of that road, we're still left wanting because it never actually gives us the security that we need. And so we have to trust God. We have to say that, listen, this may cost me, but I'm still gonna trust him. And when you read through the book of Daniel, you actually see this over and over and over again in his life and the lives of his friends. You might know them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, VeggieTales, right? And so they consistently are put in this place where they can be obedient to God or not. And almost every time disobedience is a death penalty. And every time they say, okay, okay, even death is better than disobedience, but I'm gonna trust that whatever happens, God's gonna take care of me. And that's a scary place for us to be, to say, whatever happens, God's gonna take care of me. If I really go all in and join a community group, God's gonna take care of my time. If I really go all in and commit to serve somewhere, God's gonna take care of me. If I really take a risk of being vulnerable and let people see me, God's gonna take care of me through that. Where, where do we need to trust God? Because when we don't trust God, we're gonna trust the world and all the world is gonna offer us is more uncertainty. Where do we get to a point where we truly are willing to say, God, I trust you. I know that you love me. And even if I don't know what's gonna happen, I'm gonna be obedient to what I know you've called me to do. That anchor of trust is going to sustain us in the storms of life. And it's not easy. I was bad at it this week. Literally every car I owned needed um, to be put into the shop. Right? And it wasn't like a financial issue for me. It was just like a sanity issue for me, okay? Fortunately, it wasn't like we had to put a new engine in there or whatever. Like, again, last, I don't know cars. Um, but just all of them just kept needing something. Like, God, why is this all breaking? Why did you bring me to Atlanta? Cars didn't break in Indiana. It's, it's true. I don't know if you knew that. Uh, just, right? Even in this petty, small moment, I was like a petulant kid throwing a fit because I was stressed out. Why is that? Well, because sometimes, if I'm honest, I trust having a lot of extra money more than I trust God's provision. And again, don't hear me wrong. This isn't a financial issue. It wasn't like we didn't have the money. I just like the illusion of trust. I like that. I don't want to trust God because I can't see him. But I can see the Schwab app, right? <laughs> and in that moment, what that revealed in my heart is I don't trust God as much as I should. Even when I didn't need him to do anything miraculous. God's like, dude, you have what you need. What's, what's the problem here? Like, I don't understand your damage. Um, where are we not trusting God? Because for me, when I don't trust God, I am not a fountain of love and grace and warmth. You can ask my family this week. I tend to be stressed out, neurotic, and a little bit paranoid. And so that, that's, not, that's not a place where the fruits of the spirit are evident in my life and probably not yours either. And so where are we not trusting God? God is trustworthy. It's worth it. This anchor of trust is going to sustain us in a world that is not trustworthy. So let's look at the last one because I think it's really beautiful how God not only comes through, but he does more than just sustain Daniel. And he's done more, by the way, than just sustain you and I. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all vision and dreams. At the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, 
And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. Here's another way of saying they stood before the king. They were really good at what they did, and they made a huge impact on the kingdom of Babylon. And so this isn't God being faithful by giving them a promotion. Don't hear it that way. This is God had a purpose for their lives that was fulfilled. And in God's provision for these guys, he didn't just keep them alive. He actually gave them a purpose and a mission. And what that purpose and mission accomplishes in the book of Daniel is showing everyone in this pagan kingdom the power, might, and holiness of who God is. Because time and time again, these guys in a very public political position were challenged about their belief in God. And every time they were, everyone saw that God was more powerful than the pagan gods the Babylonians worshipped, that God was real, that he was big, and that he was holy. The mission of these four youths was to reflect the truth and glory of God to a people that did not know him. That was the mission. Our mission's not a lot different. God's given us a mission, right? As Jesus was leaving, as he ascended into heaven, he said, go therefore and make disciples of the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We have a mission as a church to reflect the goodness and greatness of God through the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ and how we love one another and how we go out into Metro Atlanta and how we go out into our global mission partners, we have a mission. That's the last anchor. We have this anchor of mission. God didn't just bring us here so we could sit down and obey him and just kind of, you know, not make too much of a problem for anybody. He's actually called us to reflect his goodness and his glory. And I think sometimes in all of the uncertainty of the world, we have mission creep and we get sidetracked. And we forget that our primary purpose isn't to make a lot of money. Our primary purpose isn't to build a comfortable kind of designer Northern Atlanta life. Our purpose isn't even to make sure our kids get into college. I'm not saying any of those are bad. I'm saying those are not our primary purpose. And so what happens when uncertainty tugs at some of those idols and we're not sure about trusting God is we forget our purpose. You have a larger purpose than making money and dying. You have a larger purpose than selling and improving your company's bottom line. You have a larger purpose than building a legacy of Americans who have done well in this world. And it's fine to do all that. It's just not your larger purpose. You have been created and gifted to worship God and love the people around you. You have been specifically made to reflect the image of God to a world that doesn't know him. And so you have these giftings and these wirings and these opportunities. You have a mission that God has given you and it's good. It's good. Beyond that, you don't have to do it by yourselves. Like we get to do this together. In all of our imperfections and in all of the places where we aren't as perfect as we'd like to be, we can come together as a people and show one another grace, love one another and take the gospel into the world. And so as we think about standing firm in our faith, one of the anchors that is gonna keep us connected to the truth of who Jesus is and what he has done in our lives is who he's called us to be. God has called you to be a reflector of his love, grace, and mercy to a world that desperately needs him. We're blown around by an uncertain world, right? But we have an anchor of eternal hope in Jesus Christ. There's people that don't have that. And they're drowning in addiction, in hopeless pursuit of material gain, in relational strife, and they don't know the hope of Jesus Christ. 
They haven't been forgiven. They haven't been made new. God has called us to join his work of reflecting those truths to the world around us. And so you have these booklets in front of you. The reason that we do this is because we wanna be a church that lives in that mission. We wanna be a church that takes this seriously because we actually believe that Jesus Christ is the only hope that we have. And so we wanna do what God's called us to do. We wanna do that together. So we want you to be in a community group. Why? Because we want you to be known and loved by people. We want you to serve. Why? Because we want to show people who Jesus is and what it means to follow him. We want to partner with Hope Roswell. We want to partner with people in Brazil and in Hungary and in Africa. We want to go back into the kids' wing and teach them who Jesus is. We want to take our teenagers and say, God has a better vision for your life than what you're ever going to hear from school or work. And we want you to be competently rooted in this reality that's going to bring us peace and eternal hope. And so we can celebrate who Jesus is because he's called us to do his work here on earth. And I forget that. I forget that in uncertainty because I get really me focused. Where am I uncomfortable? Where am I stressed out? Where do I have some desires that may not even be that important that aren't being met? And I just start kind of chasing my tail and turn into this super anxious person who thinks God might be out to get him because I have a minor inconvenience, right? Just only child problem, maybe just me. And so when I forget the mission that God has called me to, I replace his mission with my mission. And my mission and my brokenness is almost always about my selfish comfort. (laughs) That's good for no one. It's good for no one. God's called us to more. And the good news is he's called us to do that with each other. And so my hope is that as a church, we can live into this reflection of doing this together this afternoon in a way that's gonna spill over into our lives. We're gonna sit down, we're gonna share food, we're gonna laugh, we're gonna talk about what we're excited about, we're gonna talk about our hopes for the next year, and we're just gonna have some opportunities to join in the mission of God from this outpost here at RCC. And so we can look and see, hey, maybe worship, maybe I can lead in worship. I can't, but maybe you can, right? Maybe you can disciple our children. Listen, I, I think just this is, this is just something that's been on my heart, I think, in church for a really long time is I need you to understand, guys, specifically, I'm talking to you, that we love to talk about biblical manhood, right? Like, we want to be biblical men. We want to make men. You're going to make biblical men by being in our kids' ministry. Kids' ministry is not women's ministry. It's not women's ministry. And there's this misconception we have as though the women are going to take care of the kids, right? And that's fine. They do. And they do a wonderful job. But if we're serious about making biblical men, we're only going to do that if we teach our young men what it looks like to be old men. That doesn't happen if we're not back there in their lives. That doesn't happen if we're not on our knees playing with them and telling them the stories and teaching them how to pray. They're watching you. They're watching you. We need men teaching our boys what it looks like to be a man who loves Jesus. You you can't tap out on that and just assume that's not for you. We need you back there. And so we have this opportunity to be a part of the mission of God, whether it's there, whether it's in students, whether it's in local outreach. I don't know what God may be calling you to, but I know he's called you to something. And I know it's good, and I'm so happy that we get to do it together. And so today, as we get ready to respond in worship of who God is and what he's done, let's not forget these anchors. Let's not forget what it means to be obedient to God in a culture that doesn't always want us to be. Let's not forget what it looks like to trust God when obedience is hard, and let's not forget our mission. But most importantly, as we respond, I want us to remember who we're anchored to. Because if it's not for him, none of this matters. All of these anchors 
Obedience, trust, and mission are birthed out of faith. Specifically, it's birthed out of faith that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who lived a perfect life on earth, died on the cross for our sins so that we could be made a new creation in Christ, rose three days later, ascended into heaven where he sits at the right hand of the Father, and one day he is coming back to usher in his eternal kingdom. All of our faith and hope is anchored on him. And so today we're going to worship. We're going to respond by taking communion. It's this tangible reminder of who we're anchored to. And out of that faith, there's this joy that leads us into this obedience and trust and mission that is solely fueled by Jesus Christ. So if you would, pray with me as we prepare to respond in joyful worship for who he is and what he's done. God, I thank you that you have given us this place and these people. God, I thank you that you've called us to a mission. I pray that you would help us to be firmly anchored into who you are and what you have done for us. Help us to be a people that's obedient. Help us to be a people that's trusting and help us to be a people that are on the mission that you've called us to. God, strengthen us where we're nervous. Refresh us where we're tired. Take away the barriers that stand between us and being in community. God, help us to be who you've called us to be because of Jesus. It's in his name we pray, amen.